It's good that you guys are here because today is somewhat of a big day. Today we're finishing up our series through 1 Samuel after God's own heart. We're in 1 Samuel 31. Go ahead and turn there actually, Uh, 1 Samuel 31. Um, Now I said it's somewhat of a big day because if you've been around, you know that we're not just doing 1 Samuel, we're actually doing 2 Samuel 2. And originally in the Hebrew, there were just one book, okay, when they copied them down in scrolls, they split them up into two because it was so long. So really, we're only halfway done. Um, so don't get too excited. Okay, we're just going to take a short break. We're going to do an intermission in between the two. Um, but it's still somewhat big because there is kind of a narrative ending in 1 Samuel 31. 1 Samuel 31. I should turn there also. We're going to read the entire chapter um, And it is a big chapter because in 1 Samuel 31, we see the death of King Saul. So let me read it, we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. 1 Samuel 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. Verse 8. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and uh, and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. This is the word of God. Will you bow your heads with me? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this afternoon and we pray, even as we sung, that you would take our lives. God, we pray that you would take our lives, that you would consecrate them for you. And God, I know that people here are busy, that there are a lot of things going on in life. But God, I pray that we would take these moments together as we sit before your holy word. And I pray, Father, that we would consider the entirety of our lives in light of who you are. God, I pray that you would help us to think of bigger things and deeper things. And I pray, God, that you would use this time to do something transforming, something amazing, something mighty in our hearts. And God, as we close this first half of the series, as we think about what it means to be after your own heart, God, I pray that you would help us to get beneath the surface, God, to to stop thinking about just the, the... worldly things that so easily take up our mental space. And I pray, God, that we will get to the heart of things. God, we look to you. We need your spirit to help us. So we submit ourselves to him. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever given much thought to your legacy? You ever think about that? Your legacy, that is your impact or your reputation or your contribution to the world and to the people around you. Kind of the part of you that will still be around after you yourself 
are no longer around. And this all seems too, you know, out there. Think about it like this. Make it a little bit more concrete. What stories about you do you think your children and your grandchildren, hopefully, will tell about you? What do you think their favorite memories are going to be? What kind of lessons do you think will be passed down from your life into theirs? What do you think will haunt them about who you are and what they remember and what they know? In 1965, a reporter named Jean Stafford, she spent a few days with a woman named Margaret Oswald. And if you don't know who that is, she was the mother of a certain Lee Harvey Oswald. And if you don't know who that is, he's the guy who was arrested for assassinating John F. Kennedy. Right here in Dallas, actually. You could actually drive right past the grassy knoll today. If you're driving through Dallas, you can go right down the same street that JFK was driving down when he was shot. So Stafford, Gene Stafford, she wanted to write a story on this woman, Margaret Oswald, and the kind of complex issue of having a son remembered in such a negative way by so many different people. So they sat down together. They went to, uh, she went to her Fort Worth home, not that far from here. They sat down in her living room. And Stafford thought, you know, she starts small. It's kind of a sensitive thing. You're going to bring up your son, her son, who was kind of notorious and who also died. But right away, before even she could ask a single question, Mrs. Oswald started talking. And she didn't stop for three days. Okay, she even borrowed the recorder when Jean Stafford went home to record some monologues for her on her own. Now, Okay, if you know your history at all, you know that JFK was killed right here. You know that there are all these theories, though, about what actually happened. Did Lee Harvey Oswald actually do it? Were there accomplices? You can go to the museum or go on Wikipedia if you want to find out more about that. But the crazy thing is, Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested for the murder of JFK. And then two days later, he himself was killed by this guy named Jack Ruby. So basically, the final thing happened in his life. He, he was accused of killing one of the most popular presidents who ever lived. And then he himself died. So he never had a defense. He never had a chance to add any more pages to his legacy. And Margaret Oswald, she felt like she believed that her son was being painted incorrectly. She was adamant people were remembering him in totally the wrong light, and she was going to set the record straight, even if she had to talk people's ears off to do it. So she talked, and she talked, and she talked. Did you know that Lee played on a baseball team when he was young? The newspapers keep saying that he was a weirdo loner, but how could a weirdo loner make a baseball team? Did you know that Lee one time played hooky from school, but... He came home and he told me all about it. How many boys are that honest? Lee was a fine son. He was a fine father. He was a fine husband. He was a fine boy. You write that down. There's kind of a desperation in her words. And, okay, you feel for her a little bit, don't you? Right? You can kind of understand why she was like this because of circumstances beyond her control she learned the hard way that legacy really matters. That legacy, who people think you are, who people remember you as being, it really affects you. She learned that a person's entire life could be reduced down to one event, to a single impression. And for her in particular, it wasn't just her son's legacy she discovered. No, it was also her legacy that was on the line. The scrutiny placed on her son's life was in a huge way an indictment of her as a mother. You know, someone once said that you can't impose a legacy. You can't impose a legacy. And what that means is that you can't tell people what to believe about someone. You can't control what they remember. They will believe and remember what they have seen and experienced themselves. So circle back to the original question. Think about your life seriously for a minute. I know it's easy to kind of just let the days pass by. I can't believe it's 2022 already. We have 
busy schedules. We got things we got to take care of. We got things we got to do today, maybe. But just for this moment, just for a little while, just think about the bigger picture of your life. We have this time right now. Think about your legacy. What do you think people will remember and believe about you? What do you think? And if you have no idea, right, how am I supposed to know? Like, how am I supposed to know what's going to happen when I'm gone? Well, what are the people in your life right now? Your family, your kids, your parents, your siblings, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your brothers and sisters in Christ right here, strangers who interact with you. What are they seeing and experiencing for themselves when it comes to you right now? Because that's what your legacy is shaping up to be. Now, why are we talking about legacy? Well, we read the text. Today we close the book, really, on the first king of Israel. This is the final page of King Saul's life. And we might not have realized this. Nowhere in 1 Samuel does it actually just spell it out for us. But if you look in the book of Acts, it references this. Saul has been king for 40 years. I mean, we've been in with him for, I don't know, like eight months, nine months or something. But over this time span, 40 years, four decades have gone by. We spent a lot of this man's life with him. And if you've been here, you know that for the past several chapters, time has slowed down. The story has kind of ground to a halt and the tension has been building. The story has been cutting. The camera has been cutting between David and Saul David and Saul, scene to scene, highlighting the contrast between them more and more. And it's all been leading here to this final battle between the Philistines and Israel. But for our purposes, the final day of Saul's life. And the crazy thing is, last chapter, if you were here when Eric was preaching on this, David, who had kind of been wandering a little bit, returned to God. And he found strength and grace in the Lord in his time of greatest need. But last time we saw Saul, he was completely different. He was desperate. He was terrified. He was collapsing on the floor in fear, knowing that death was knocking on his door and that God had forsaken him because he had long ago forsaken God. So let's get into it. We're talking about one man's life, death, and legacy. Three points as usual. Three headings under which we'll break down the text. First, a destiny. Second, a tragedy. Third, a legacy. First, a destiny. A destiny. Which teaches us that character is ultimately more important than circumstance. Look at verse 1. Now, the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. So, Last chapter, it was miles away. We were with David, but now the scene cuts back to the big battle that we've been building toward, and it's already started, and it's not going well. We're dropped right down into the middle of a rout. See, the Philistines, and we haven't talked about them a lot recently, but the Philistines, with their technological superiority, with their iron chariots and iron weapons, they're just wrecking Israel in the valley of Jezreel, verse 2. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. So the most important men of Israel, the people that you'd want to protect at all costs, are already being overtaken. They are being hunted down. And Jonathan, who we spent quite a bit of time with, the man of God, the mighty warrior, David's best friend and the oldest son of Saul, is killed just like that with two of his brothers. Right in front of Saul. Now, press pause for a moment. Okay, we will move beyond this in a second. But it's not just that things are going bad. Okay, that's not all that's going on here. In the context of the book, in the wider flow, it's that things aren't just going bad. They're actually going exactly how they're supposed to. Because the ghost of Samuel, remember, appeared to Saul and he told him by prophecy... That this was going to happen. First Samuel 28. On this day, Saul and your sons, you will perish. And now, if there had been any doubt, it's all evaporating. I mean, if Saul thought maybe Samuel was wrong, probably not. But maybe he sees his sons slain right before his eyes. 
So think about this, okay? Saul was told that this was going to happen. Saul was told he only had 24 hours left to live. He had a day's notice. What would you do with that kind of information if you were Saul? What would you do if someone who is reliable, of God himself, told you, tomorrow you're going to die? I mean, I don't know about you, but I think, I'd like to think that I would try to do something with that information. It's a gift. You know, there's this book called um, Machine of Death. Cool name, right? Uh, Machine of Death. I never read it uh, in my life, Um, but I do know what it's about generally. It's about a machine of death. Uh, God bless you guys. Let me close in prayer. Uh, It's about a machine that tells you how you're going to die. It doesn't tell you when, but it tells you how. And everyone who goes to the machine will receive some information. You're going to die by old age, let's say. But the thing about the machine is, uh, it's not always what you'd expect. So, for example, it tells you that you're going to die of old age, and you think, great, right? I can, like, live crazy when I'm a youth, right? I could speed. I could do extreme sports. I don't have to wear my seatbelt, all these different things. But then what turns out, what, what turns out to be the case is that an old person kills you. So it's kind of like old age kills you, but it's an old age of someone else. It could say plane crash. So people, they try to avoid planes their whole lives, right? They, they never go out of the country or they take a boat and then a plane crashes into their house and kills them. The thing about this machine, the thing about this machine of death is that you can't avoid it. That's what you see throughout this story. And it's multiple different stories about different people. People tried to avoid it. Some people accepted their fate. Doesn't matter. The machine is a prophet that is never wrong. And the book explores this idea. What do you do when you find out for sure that you're going to die in such and such a way? Now, the book is fiction, but you can kind of see where this is, this is going. With Saul, it's not fiction, but it's the same scenario. So put yourself in his sandals for a moment. What would you have done if you found out that you're going to die in battle tomorrow? Would you have hoped that you could avoid it in some way? Would you have pulled a Jonah and tried to run away, you know, go as far away from the battle as possible? What would you have done? Would you have given up? You can imagine it's probably scary to have your impending death hanging over your head. I don't know what I would do. Honestly, I'm kind of glad that I'm not in his shoes. And yet, hear the words of Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2. You ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? Some people say it's a downer. It's about a guy who basically pursues everything that he thinks might make up a good life. And in the end, he feels like it's all meaningless. This is what he says in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. And what he's talking about is death. Listen again. It is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. For this is, death is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. It's the same for all of us. In chapter 9, he goes through this list. He says, guess what? The righteous and the evil person. The person who gives sacrifices, who doesn't do sacrifices. The person who fasts and doesn't fast. The person who swears oaths oaths and keeps them. And the person who breaks his oaths. Guess what? They all go to the same place. And that place is called death. See, the uncomfortable truth that we are to lay to heart as the living however uncomfortable it is. The truth is our deaths actually are already hanging over us. Maybe we like to believe because we don't know the specifics that it's something that we don't have to think about. But the Bible says, you might not have a specific prophecy, but the word of God actually says that you and I, just like Saul, we are a vapor here today and gone when? Tomorrow. The question is, what are we going to do with this information. Now hold that thought. Look at verse 3. The battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. Okay, so just to get a picture of what's going on here so we don't skim over, what's probably happening is the Philistines were unstoppable in the flat part of the valley with their chariots. Okay, they, they are a more technologi- technologically advanced army. So they're just wrecking the Israelites 
where the ground is flat. So what's happening is the Israelites are probably withdrawing up the Mount of Gilboa. Okay, trying to get to a place where it's a little bit more even in the battle. So they're retreating, they're stepping back, they're going uphill. And the Philistines, they pull out the archers. That's why the archers are coming out, because the Israelites are trying to get away. And the Philistines start shooting their arrows, and Saul is badly wounded. He's probably been hit by multiple arrows. Verse 4, Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And there you have it. Saul dies. He falls on his own sword. And really, what an ignoble way to go out. See, Saul, right, he's bleeding from the arrows. We've seen that in the text. He could no longer fight or run, presumably. And what he feared now was that the Philistines would overtake him and that they would mistreat him, that they would torture him before they killed him with their swords themselves. So what he does is he turns to his armor bearer, the only guy left, and he says, hey, kill me real quick so that I don't get mistreated, so that I don't get tortured. But the text says that the armor bearer refused. He was too scared. And what that means is most likely is that he was a good guy. He was a man of integrity. He didn't want to lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed, which is a big theme in 1 Samuel. Don't lift your hand against the king, even though it's the king who's telling you to do it. Don't kill that guy. You don't want that blood on your hands. This guy feared God more than he feared man. So he said, sorry, I'm not going to do it. So in verse 4, we read that Saul does maybe the most Saul thing that he ever could have done. He lifts his own hand against the Lord's anointed himself. And he did it because he was scared. You know, I read this article the other day um, by this um, nurse uh, who works in like hospice or something. And she was sharing about the top five deathbed confessions or regrets that she hears uh, most often. And I'll just tell you what they are real quick. She said the number one regret she hears the most is I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself not the life others expected of me. The second was, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. The third was, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. And the last two were, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends, and I wish I had let myself be happier. Now, we could pick apart these regrets all you want. You could say, those are bad regrets. Why are you thinking about happiness at a time like this? Think about other people. But that's not the point here. The point is, most people... Every person really, they leave this earth, uh, this earthly life with regrets on their mind. And here's the hard truth. You thought the hard truth was you're going to die and death is hanging over your head. That's the small hard truth. But the big hard truth of this first point is wishful thinking on your deathbed doesn't change a thing. Isn't that crazy? You have all these things you wish you could do, but on your deathbed, it's too late. It changes nothing to tell some nurse that you wished you lived differently. Your life is done. You know, earlier in this series, I shared this quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. He said, sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. A destiny. You thought the prophecy was the destiny, but that's not the case. See, what you think about leads to what you do, which makes up what you do repeatedly, which makes up who you are in your life, which determines where you end up, your destiny. You reap what you sow. And you say, Jesse, why, why are you doing this, man? Can you get sick again so Eric can preach? Well, the reason why I'm bringing this up and why we're going so hard in the first verse is because did you see what Saul did? Were you watching his final actions closely? He was given the knowledge that he had 24 hours to live, a gift most of us never receive, and yet what did he do with it? Nothing. Not a single thing. No repentance, no making things right with his maker before he meets him, nothing. In fact, Saul does exactly what he has already been doing this whole time, thinking about himself. Did you listen to his words carefully? The last word that he ever utters on this earth is me. It's in the English and the Hebrew. 
The last thing he ever says is me. That's who Saul was to the end. His life was the same as it had always been. And what we see in Saul is exactly what the Emerson quote is getting at. Sure, Saul, uh, Samuel's prophecy came true. He couldn't avoid his death. But Samuel didn't destine him to only think about himself in his final moments. Samuel didn't destine him to still be the same person in the end. His destiny was determined by his life. He was who he thought he was till the very, till the very bitter end. Now, everyone is crazy. Everyone's got the same few regrets. We know them. Come on, you guys know this. How many people have to say it? I wish I didn't work as hard. I wish I spent more time with my family. We know that we'll regret it on our deathbed. But here's the question. How many of us actually are doing something to change that fate right now? We say we don't want that. And yet, what are the thoughts and actions and habits and character that we're sowing out every single day. And so many people think they're going to somehow rise above who they are when the chips are down, when their backs are against the wall. When you find out you only got 24 hours left to live, you're going to completely become a different person. But what do we see with Saul? That's not the case at all. And I think if we're honest and we actually look at the people around us, even ourselves, that's not the case at all. Your circumstances don't determine your character. They merely reveal it. And yet, what do you hear people saying? You hear people say things like, if I won the lottery, then I'd be generous. If I won the lottery and had millions of dollars, then I would help the widow and the orphan and, you know, the child in Africa who was starving. I give a ton of it away. Will you though? I mean, tell me how you spend your money right now. I don't need to know the details, but just generally. Tell me how you are so generous right now with the riches God has blessed you with. Look, a windfall isn't going to change who you fundamentally are inside. If you aren't generous now, that says something about the kind of person you are. Or what about this? You got people talking a big game about when persecution comes to America, that I'm going to stand up for Christ. Will you though? I don't want to go too hard here. I even wrote down, maybe this is too harsh, but you guys know who I am, who I am. I'm going to take a stand for Christ if persecution comes. What makes us think that we will risk our livelihood and even our lives to be part of an underground church when we can't even make it a priority when the doors are open and it's free? What makes us think that we will be obedient when the gun is to our forehead, when we can't even forgive our wife who sleeps in the same bed with us? Look, I'm not trying to pick on anyone here. What I'm just saying is, you got to look at Saul. You got to really look at this guy. The Bible has been showing us this guy for 40 years. Things won't change unless you change. We are going to die, and we are going to die as ourselves. God will not be mocked. We reap what we sow. What destiny are you walking towards right now? This leads to the second point. The second point, a tragedy. See, Sam, uh, Saul's destiny was to die. That's what Samuel said. But Saul died as himself. That was up to him. He reaped what he sowed. Second, a tragedy. And this second point is about understanding that your choices have consequences that go beyond you. Okay, verse 5. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Saul straight up abandoned this guy. You ever heard the, the, the phrase, a captain or the captain goes down with the ship? Okay, Saul just jumped off the boat and said, see you guys, I'm out of here. So this guy decides to follow the lead of his king. What else is he going to do, right? He's the only one here. Verse 6, thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer. And look at this, and all his men on the same day together. All because of Saul and the choices he made. Now the prophecy was about Saul. 
okay? But his destiny was connected to all these different people, his servants, his sons, his soldiers. Why? Because he was their king. He was their father. He was their commander-in-chief. Now, turn with me to Matthew 25. You can keep your place here, but I want to show you something. And I won't have you flipping too much, but I think you need to hear this from the text. Matthew 25. Matthew 25, we're going to start in verse 14. We'll just run through this. Matthew 25, 14. This is Jesus telling a parable. Matthew 25, 14, he says, For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Now quickly, um, a talent here, okay, it's a unit of measurement in the ancient world, okay, for gold, for silver, for precious metals. Um, the application is broader than that, but just to give you a sense, it's not like America's got talent, like I'm really good at this thing. It's talking about actual money, okay? So a talent was some money. And in this case, okay, at this time period, if you want to kind of, I know inflation and things like kind of change all the time, but this is, one talent is over a million dollars easy, okay? For sure, over a million dollars easy. So to get 10 talents or five talents, two talents, whatever, that's a lot of money. He gives him a lot of money to look, at, uh, to look after. Verse 16, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And look at verse 21. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 22, and he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now pay attention, verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Now, this can be confusing. We're not preaching through Matthew right now, so let me just lay it out for you quickly. So far, what we've seen is a master who is willing to give a lot to his servants, right? Millions of dollars. For him, he says, it is little. You've been faithful in little. But he gives them a lot, objectively speaking. And once they return what they had been given, and they show the master what they have done with it, The master is super generous, is he not? He says, I'm going to give you way more. Enter into the what of your master, the joy. He's a very positive person. But this third servant who buried his talent says that he knew, he understood the master to be different, to be a hard man who reaps where he doesn't sow. It sounds like a different guy entirely. He doesn't know the master that well. Keep reading verse 26. So his master, but his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And on my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, okay, let's just get that out there. This escalated pretty quick, and there's a lot that we could get out of this. But the reason why I had us turn here and look at this, this parable, this analogy, is because this isn't about just money. It's not just about talents. What it's about is what God has given to his servants. It's about, in other words, stewardship. Stewardship. Do you know what stewardship is? We talk about it every once in a while. The Bible talks about it quite a bit. 
but I haven't defined it in a while. Stewardship is when someone gives you something of theirs for you to watch over. It's when you're given responsibility over something that you don't actually own, but you have that responsibility. The first two servants had different abilities and were given a different stewardship, and yet all the master cared about was whether or not they had taken care of his stuff. And that's the contrast between them and the third wicked servant. He did nothing with what the master gave him. He dropped the ball, and then he tried to blame the master, who is God in this parable, for it. And it showed that he had no relationship with God. And at the end of his life, he faced the judgment. Now, go back to our text. You can go back to 1 Samuel 31. But remember this idea, stewardship. And think about this. What was Saul's stewardship? What was Saul's stewardship? I think it's, it's a lot, actually. I mean, he was the king of Israel, the first king there ever was. He was the one given the responsibility to watch over God's chosen people. But it's more than that. Remember Saul, when we first met him, he's the tallest, best-looking, strongest guy. He had many gifts. He was probably the most gifted person in Israel. What else? How many sons did he have? At least three. He was a father by stewardship. He was a husband by stewardship. He was a servant of God by stewardship. And his roles, his tasks, what he was given, they carried with them a responsibility to God and to others. And Saul dropped the ball. And what we see here is the worst tragedy you could ever expect to see on a human level. Because Saul drops the ball. Because Saul is a bad king. Because Saul is a bad father. Because Saul is, in a lot of ways, a bad person. People suffer and die. And the truth is, your destiny, to bring it back to us, your destiny will affect more than just you. I do care about you, and I care about your destiny, and I care about how people remember you. But it goes beyond that. There are people in your life There are relationships that you've been given to steward. And if you drop the ball, they will suffer. Think about that. Think about your roles, your responsibilities, your stewardship. Think about where God has placed you. Think about the people that God has brought into your life. If you're a father, think about that. If you're a mother, if you're a teacher, if you're a servant of Christ, which every Christian is, if you're a brother or sister, if you're a boss, What happens to the people around you if you drop the ball? You know, I was just reading this biography this week of this late pastor. And he was talking about his parents, kind of his formative years. He's talking about his mom. And he talked about how she was the one who really taught him Christianity. She taught him all the songs that he still remembered, taught him the Bible. She, She would minister to people and try to bring people into their house and be hospitable and all these different things. And he had fond memories. She wasn't perfect, but he had fond memories. But by contrast, and remember this guy's a pastor, but by contrast, he said his father didn't really teach him anything about God. He's like, don't get me wrong. My father was, you know, he was an an admirable man. You know, he was a butcher. He worked really hard to provide for the family. But this guy, right, I think when the biography was written and they were talking about him, he was probably like in his 70s or 80s. He's an old guy, and he still remembers these things about his father. He remembers times where his father would take him to work, right? They would stop by different restaurants and stuff to deliver the meat. And he remembered that it would be late, and he hadn't eaten yet. And he's a little kid, and his dad would go in, and he'd just be doing business. He'd just be chopping shop with these guys, bringing the meat in. They'd give him some coffee and some, like, pie and stuff, and he'd just be watching from the car in the cold through the window. Like, as an old guy, this is what he remembers of his father. And it struck me, my kids will remember certain things about what I do and what I say that I have no control over. At least what they remember, I have control over what I do. But they will remember who I am and what kind of impression, and it'll shape them. And they'll think about these things even when they're 70 or 80. When I'm long gone, they'll be like, I remember the time when my dad did this or didn't do this. 
I was actually going to give an example, but the kids are in here, including my own kids. So we're at the very end of 1 Samuel now. It's been a long time since Saul was anointed king, but I want to take us to the past for a moment. I want to remind you of something. 1 Samuel chapter 10. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. Samuel pulls Saul aside. Saul is a young man. He's likable. He's gifted. And this is what it says. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and he kissed him and said, has not the Lord's anointed, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of Israel and you will save them from their hand of their surrounding enemies. And what he's telling them is you are anointed to save these people, these people who belong to God from their enemies. But what does Saul do? On the very last day of his life, he leads these people to their deaths. Guys, a tragic life is never solitary. And there's more to this if you look at verse 7. Okay? And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and they fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. This is crazy. There's so much irony here, especially if you know your Old Testament. The people just abandon their cities. They're scared, their houses. It's a ship without a captain. And the Philistines just move on in. <laughs> They're like sleeping in their beds. They're like getting food from out of their fridge. And this is ironic because this is Israel's promised land. And if you know the Exodus story at all, when Israel showed up, they weren't that strong. God is the one who helped them. There were people who lived there, and God drove them out, and they were able to live in these ready-made, already-built cities. So what's happening here is the exact opposite of that. You see that? The Israelites were supposed to have this land as their inheritance, but because of Saul, King Saul, and his failures, guess what? The Philistines, the arch enemies of Israel, actually, in a way, inherit the promised land. And the worst part about it is Saul was supposed to save them from the Philistines, specifically. It's a mess. And yet you got to understand this because it happens so regularly. We're all given a stewardship. And when we drop the ball, we curse instead of bless. We curse instead of bless. Let's make this a little bit more concrete. How many fathers who are supposed to be protectors of their family are actually dangers to their family? How many mothers abandon their kids when they're supposed to nurture and take care of them? How many friends who are supposed to be closer than a brother gossip and betray their friends? How many pastors embezzle from their churches or have an affair with a congregant? How many Christians turn people off to the gospel by their lives and by their words? Each of us has a stewardship from God and before God. And with it, we can either curse people or bless people. And when we drop the ball, they receive the curse. What we do with what God has given us, it will affect the people God has placed in our lives. And you can take that to the bank. Think about your kids and your friends and your gifts and your money and your time and your life. You're supposed to use it for a purpose. The greatest tragedy is when you use it to ruin other people. And this leads to the third and final point, a legacy. A legacy, which reminds us that what we do in this life will echo in eternity. <clears throat> Verse 8, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So in the heat of the battle, there's no time to look for Saul. You got to fight. But here they find the royal family, verse 9. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. So even though he wasn't mistreated when he was alive, they humiliate him in his death. This is a terrible terrible defeat for Israel. They take the king, the strongest, most talented guy. They strip him naked of his armor. They behead him. They take his stuff and they put it in the temple of an idol and they display his headless body up on a wall for everyone to see. And what do they do? They carry the what? They carry the good news of his death to everybody. 
It's kind of like bizarro evangelism. They evangelize about how Saul has died and they have won. Verse 11. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead, sorry about that. When the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Okay, so what's this? What's this? Years ago, and there's a little bit of hope here, years ago, probably 30-something years ago at this point, when Saul was a young king, this enemy nation besieged Jabesh Gilead. Okay, this is way back in 1 Samuel. You might not remember this. They besieged them. They threatened them with violence. They said, we're going to cut your eyes out and all this stuff. And Jabesh Gilead, they asked for help. And who answered the call? It was the young, new, freshly anointed king of Israel, Saul. And he showed up. And with courage, he defeated those enemies. And he delivered those people. It was one of Saul's finest moments. And here, all the way at the end of his life, the people of Jabesh Gilead, they remember the debt that they owe Saul. And they risk their lives and their limbs. They go into Philistine territory by night. They take the body of Saul and his sons, and they do their best to give him a proper burial. They give honor where honor is due. And this is kind of the flip side of what I'm saying. Okay, I know that I've been going pretty hard, but you reap what you sow, and that means if you sow good things, you will reap good things. It can happen. Saul did some good stuff. And we see that he did some good stuff. There's a callback to his good stuff. See, Saul is a tragic figure, high highs and low lows. He's complex. And that's because he was a real person. One more verse. And then we'll close off this point and then we'll close. Verse 13, and they took their bones, that's Saul and his sons, and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. This final image is also a callback. Last time we saw Saul under a tamarisk tree was at the height of his power. Do you remember this? He sat while his men stood around him awaiting his orders under a tamarisk tree just like this one. And then he did the worst thing that he ever did. He commanded the slaughter of the priest of Nob. He commanded that God's servants be killed, every single one of them. So what a sight to be buried here. What a way to close this book, to end this first half of the story with this haunting picture of this king reminding us of the best and worst things that he's done in his life. And now he is in the ground, no more pages to be written about his legacy, and his soul now stands before Almighty God, the one who judges the living and the dead. Now, some of you guys who like movies, you know that when I brought up this brought up this point, a legacy, I quoted from a movie. And it's because when I was in seminary, we had a professor named Dr. Farnell, but he made us call him Maximus. Okay, and he called his Greek class Gladiator Greek. That was the intensive. You do one year of Greek in just a few weeks. I don't, I don't think I did it because I was too scared. But he did Gladiator Greek. And the reason why he, he did all this stuff is because he loved the movie Gladiator. Now, I know you guys know it's rated R. I'm not saying it's good or not. My professor liked it, okay? And that's his thing. And he had students call him Maximus. He would, like, quote the movie and stuff. He was kind of an interesting character. I heard before Gladiator came out, he used to call it Star Trek Greek. I have no idea what that was about at all. Anyway, he liked Gladiator for many reasons. But one of the main ones was this line from early in the film where Maximus, who's the general who becomes a slave, who becomes a gladiator, who defies an emperor, that's the tagline of the movie, says this incredible line. He's leading the Roman legion, the Roman army, his army, into battle. And what he says beforehand is, what we do in life echoes in eternity. And my professor, he loved that, right? It was on his website. Whenever we had to like turn in our homework, it would say that, on the top, on his GeoCities website, blinking for us. What we do in life echoes in eternity. So you got to understand, yes, your earthly life, your earthly destiny is determined by what you do here and now. Yes, also, you can be a blessing to those around you, or you can be a tragedy that ruins the people who have had the misfortune of being born into your life. Yes, your legacy is how you will be remembered by everyone around you, the people who will come after you. But 
what matters more than any of those things is what God will say about you when you show up before him. The most important thing about you is the part of you that will echo into eternity. What do you think will happen? Of all the hard questions I ask, what do you think will happen with you when you take your final breath and you step over that threshold from death or from life into death and you stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he says, let's go over the things you've done. Second Corinthians 5.10, our scripture reading, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. When you're buried under the tree, when all the pages of your life have been written, when God is coming through the good and the evil deeds that you have done, what's he going to say about your life? And where's he going to send you? And maybe you're thinking now, the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. I don't know if I could stand before God. It's not going to be good. How am I going to stand before God and answer for my sins and my failings? I know I've dropped the ball. How am I going to answer for all the times I let my children down? How am I going to answer for all the times I let my church down, let my parents down, for how I've done nothing of note with the stewardship God has given me? Maybe you're ashamed, and maybe you don't know if you can change. Well, let me tell you something. And this is where we'll close the book on Saul, at least for a while. Saul was given a heavy stewardship, and he definitely failed as a king. And people like his son, like his nation, like his armor bearer, they paid the price. But here's the thing about Saul, and here's the thing about the Bible. There are certain people in the Bible who are villains. They are just evil. We remember them as the worst of the worst, the scum of the earth. You think about Cain, who killed his brother Abel. You think about Judas Iscariot, who betrayed the Messiah. Scripture never portrays Saul in this way. Saul's failures are written for all eternity for us to read. His legacy is not that great, but Saul is still portrayed as just a man, a man like us. And the ways in which he failed are ways in which we all fail in different ways. And the thing about Saul is that because he was remembered in this way as more of a tragic figure more than anything, his name wasn't erased. You know what I'm talking about? You know, sometimes when you have a kid and maybe like you had a bad experience with someone who had a certain name, you don't want to name your kid that, right? If you're a teacher, you don't want, you had a bad kid named like Joey or something, you don't want to name your kid Joey. No one's naming their kid Adolf Hitler today. No one's naming their kid Judas. My friend wanted to for some reason, so I guess one guy wanted to, but you don't name them after these evil people. But Saul never got that treatment. In fact, in the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's tribe, that name was passed down for years and for centuries, even a millennia. And we actually see that toward the end of the Bible. One of the main figures in the New Testament, the author who wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else, his name was Saul. And he was named after this guy, King Saul. Saul of Tarsus, born Centuries later, was from the same tribe as Saul, son of Kish. The name was a tribal name that stood the test of time. And like King Saul, there are some parallels here. He had a heavy stewardship. He was smarter than everyone else. He was more zealous than anyone else. He was a religious prodigy, a man who had gone far beyond all of his peers in every single way. He knew the law of God backwards and forwards. And yet, what do we read about his life? He dropped the ball. Because even though he spent his life living for God, actually what he was doing was going against him. He persecuted the true church and the followers of the Lord's anointed Jesus Christ. And he had the audacity to lift his hand against the body of God's king. He had it completely backwards. His great learning had driven him to be a curse to others, not a blessing. But then something changed. And I want you to turn with me to 2 Timothy 4. 
2 Timothy 4, and this is the final page that we have of Saul's life. Saul of Tarsus' life. And you might know him by his other name, the Apostle Paul. 2 Timothy 4, the final chapter of his final letter. And this is what he writes, starting in verse 6. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And if you know Saul at all, you say, wait, what? Aren't you the guy who persecuted Christians? Didn't you aid in murder? Weren't you the person who said yourself that you were the chief of sinners? He was. But then he met someone. The man named after the first king of Israel met the final king of Israel. And like King Saul, this final king was prophesied to die. Like King Saul, he fell to the ground the night before knowing what was ahead. Like King Saul, he was humiliated, stripped naked, hung up for the entire world to see. His death was also proclaimed as good news. But see, the difference is, unlike King Saul, this final king, King Jesus, was not afraid for himself. Unlike King Saul, King Jesus didn't die for his own failures. Unlike King Saul, at his death, his words were not me, 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 but Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus died for sinners like us. And because of that, wretches like the Apostle Paul, like Saul of Tarsus, could be forgiven and they could change. And so can you. You can hear like he did these words at the judgment, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's what it is. Because of Jesus, your legacy can be rewritten. Because of his faithfulness, you can be faithful from now on. So be faithful. Be faithful. You don't have to do amazing, huge things for God. Just be faithful. Rewrite your own legacy with the pen of grace that he gives you, a legacy of faithfulness. Matthew 10, 42, even giving a cup of water to someone will be rewarded in eternity. See, what you do today and every day for the rest of your life, however long you have, it'll echo. Close here. You think you'd feel bad for Margaret Oswald, her son being connected to JFK's assassination, and then he himself being assassinated two days later. You can kind of understand her desire to protect her son and his legacy. If you think that, a lot of other people thought that too. And then they met her. If you know anything about this woman, you know that she is universally remembered as, quote-unquote, a disagreeable piece of work. Something happened with her, and maybe she was always this way, and maybe this is why, sad as it sounds, Lee Harvey Oswald was the way that he was, but she was someone who was obsessed with herself. And when Lee was killed and everyone wanted to know about him, of course she cared about his legacy a little bit, but she really only cared about him as it pertained to her. Some people described her as a stage parent almost. You know, a stage parent who wanted to live vicariously through her own kid, who obviously, ultimately, over time, showed herself to be someone who cared more about her own glory. Margaret Oswald talked until everyone understood that she wanted people to know that she was great. And she talked until everyone really understood that she wasn't a good person. And that's the sad thing. Her legacy actually ended up having little to do, funny enough, little to do with what Lee, her son, did. And her legacy ended up having everything to do with what she herself did. See, you will build your legacy. One word, one deed, one habit, your character, one deed at a time. You have the opportunity to be a blessing to others 
a faithful servant and steward in God's house, a person whose life echoes with glory to God into eternity. Or not. So really, I'll just put the ball in your court as we close. What are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to change right now? What are you going to do different? Are you going to live for yourself to the bitter end? Or will you live for something more? Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And it speaks hard truth to us, but it also speaks good news. And God, I pray that for those who are convicted here, that you would bring the comfort of salvation to their souls. And God, I pray that you would change us. I pray, God, that we would live differently so that we would be a blessing to others. And even more importantly, that we would glorify you today for the rest of our lives and into eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.